As we journey along the pathway of developing the Human Kinosome Project, we talk to veterans who have made quantifiable differences in human and athlete performance, but we also seek fresh perspectives from applied scientific practitioners emerging in the sports industry. Carolyn Stilling is a sports performance scientist in Calgary who, unlike many, measures the success and failures of her programs through athlete availability. Taking that level of accountability is rare, and to find a practitioner wholly focused on building better athlete-centric models is also rare. When I heard about her programs, I couldn't wait to meet her and discuss her process, to which she graciously took the time to detail for us. Carolyn uniquely has an incredible research ethic coupled with being a hands-on strength and conditioning coach. She's literally applying her research findings daily. With insights into injury surveillance, youth foundation training, and data from wearable technologies, Carlin has made quantitative impacts at the University of Calgary in the sport of volleyball and provided insights to NBA Canada studying the effects of athlete training loads. Carlin, it's awesome to meet you and thanks for taking part in this podcast today. We have a common friend in Tyler Fraser who works over at Kinetics. And when he told me about you, I was like, hang on a minute. There's somebody else who's quantifying their programs and their existence through athlete injury reduction. Oh, and hang on a minute. It's in youth athletes. I was pretty impressed. So uh, I'm looking forward to us uh, having a good chat today. Yeah, it's an honor to meet you and get to chat today. Um, as a student of the workload area, mm. I think I only read catapult studies for the first few years of, of my time in school and just how game-changing technology has been has really surprised me and to work with a pioneer in that area is awesome. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, one of the things we were able to do at Catapult was alter the narrative in sports with coaches from something very subjective to something very objective. And look, I know some of the work that you've done um, that we'll dive into here as well is kind of on that similar pathway. How, look, firstly, how important is technology in your eyes uh, for us moving forward? Because there's a lot of old coaches in a school that will totally resist any data that you show them, right? That they, their opinion is worth more than what your gadget tells me. How do you see that? And do you see, where do you see the future with technology? So I think necessity breeds innovation. And so with the amount of youth athletes participating in sport and injury and then the monetization of sport and how important it is to have the healthy athletes there, managers, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, owners in different teams, uh, club heads for the youth programs I work with, provincial teams, we all see a common problem and we're trying to solve it. And so when you talk about some of the older school coaches, mm. I think because the technology wasn't available, they developed systems that works really well for them and their values develop differently. So when I look at different coaches and ranges of people that I work with, I always assess where their values are at as a coach. And so is this coach uh, a person that might value technology and innovation? And if they are, you know, how do we incorporate this? Uh, if they aren't, is there a different value I could connect and sneak the technology and monitoring into? 
Uh, at the end of the day, if you tell a coach, I can have more players available for training, for competition, you have more options, you have uh, a much higher chance of success in that performance. So yeah. it's about a collaborative approach with these different people in those settings that can really vary based on the context, the resources uh, available. And with what you're able to measure with technology now, I, I think you're still at the tip of the iceberg for what we're going to see with athletic performance and specifically because with youth athletes, it isn't really being used. Um, and that that is where such a huge amount of potential gets developed and where we can really have a good intervention point from an injury prevention uh, perspective as well. So I think there's massive opportunity to improve our youth programs, and then you'll see that filter up uh, to the professional levels. Look, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's interesting. You're in a um, what we would deem or I think what you even identify as a high performance model for uh, youth athletes and beyond. Let's talk about that a little bit. Firstly, how do you define that? Did you personally define it or was it a group of coaches or an institution that defined high performance and how did they define that? So from a research perspective, we do define it pretty clearly uh, between elite and non-elite athletes and uh, maybe competitive or recreational. Right. And that's something that we, we always look at. Uh, so what's that outcome we're going for? And so usually with high performance, there's common things we look at. Do we have something high functioning that's above the norm, mm. above that standard deviation? You know, are we pulling or developing the best of the best in that area? Is it the highest level of competition? Are we in those maybe more prestigious competitions or arenas? Right. And then again, there's a difference like performance is a high standard, whereas with uh, recreational activity, we're looking more at participation yeah. and getting more people involved in sports. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I've never really thought about it from the recreational almost quality of life perspective, you know, is this something that you're staying within and working through? Because sometimes you'll find too, there's, there's, there's not a lot of difference between a high-end recreational athlete and an elite athlete. Sometimes they're one or two steps away or one or two skill acquisitions away as well. Again, when you look at being able to be efficient, bigger, faster, stronger, uh, that has a lot of different avenues to achieve those things for, for a person. And within each sport, you have a totally different culture and you have a different route to maybe what a high performance or professional setting might be uh, eventually. That context is so important. So, for example, with the NCAA uh, and in basketball, I mean, that's where you want to be if you're wanting to go to the NBA yeah. and, and getting picked up there. Whereas for volleyball, you actually are probably wanting to go train in Europe after your uh, university leaving North America yeah. to then come back and play on your national team. So those are two pretty different contexts yeah. of development and different systems you're working through. Yeah, 100%. And like I realized that coming from like Major League Baseball into national team tournament play, totally different set of circumstances where I had to adjust and even tell our athletic trainers, hey, we need a different approach. We need him back tomorrow. I haven't got a week. Right, you haven't got those time frames, and I guess the thing I always look for is is the model athlete centric, and by the sound of things, yours is, and it's one of those ones that too often I've seen performance models that start with a 
you know, with a flow chart and an org chart, director of high performance and strength coaches underneath and somewhere the athlete's not even on the page. It's like, hang on a minute, you know, you forgot the most important variable here, which is that individual. Yeah, it sounds like, firstly, those combinations of all those things, pulling all that data in and looking at the athlete individually is how you define high performance. And it probably applies, there's probably different markers at different times and different levels per athlete, I would guess. Well, yeah, and I think just what their bandwidth might be uh, for each person. I mean, that's one of the first things we learn in our physiology classes in our undergrad is genetically how different we all are. Exactly. And then the spectrum of the potential. So whether it's I'm already showing up with predominantly more slow twitch or fast twitch muscle fibers, okay, I might have an aptitude in a certain area. And it's not that I can train the opposite one that I am less dominant in, but I'm gonna have an easier time you know, going in one direction. And so I think when you look at that individual approach, it's paramount. Yeah. And I'm very biased in saying that also from my background, initially how I got into training was personal training yeah. and only working with individuals and individual athletes. And my exposure to team training came later on in my career to the point it was almost overwhelming to then have to deal with 20 people yeah. at a time when I'd been so used to just that individual context for everybody and so that's the approach i try to develop um and try obviously you don't have time to always um especially in a university level setting to totally individually Mm -hmm. program but it was how much individualization can i use in these settings how can i work with athletic therapy and physiotherapy for say the rehab programs of these athletes you know how can i look at the positional needs of these athletes and that's where that technology really comes in is that it allows you to quantify what that individual is doing it allowed us to create profiles for different positions to allow for a little bit more of a fluid approach in some of these team settings but you know there's other varsity trainers they're in charge of you know, 200, 400, 500 uh, athletes at a time. Right, right. You just don't have the time to sit there with each one. (laughs) I think it's one of the critical deficiencies, and I want to talk about youth athletes and rate-limiting factors there, but one of the critical deficiencies I see overall, and I don't know whether it's just I came from a different culture in sports science out of Australia, and when I came to North America, there was a very much a strength and conditioning almost bully mindset that is being applied into elite sports. It was irrespective of the movement, capability, incapability, asymmetry of the athlete and was more, well, how much did he squat today? How much did she deadlift today? Is she doing a bench press? Blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like, let's put the athlete into the exercise. Let's not design the exercise for the athlete. And that was one of the, I think, biggest elements for me coming across was understanding that there wasn't a whole lot of individual approach to movement and understanding movement. And it's a journey that I've been on for, you know, the majority of my career, just trying to break down and identify firstly rate limiting factors for a specific athlete to perform with a specific skill if the coach is driving that tactically or strategically. But to that end, yeah, that just seems to be missing. But in youth athletes, that miss is a hell of a lot more critical than the top 1% of athletes I'm dealing with who have got a mastered motor pattern, right? You've still got rudimentary motor patterns with youth athletes. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, tell me how, how old are the kids that you're working with right now? I'll have athletes anywhere from age 10 up to 18 in our youth programs. Okay. 
Yeah, we definitely have a huge focus on that movement pattern training. And a lot of that is very evidence-based. So a big area that there is a lot of research in in youth sport out of the Sport Injury Prevention Research Center is in neuromuscular training. And that is basically movement pattern training and incorporating that into warm-ups. So it's along that thought of the FIFA 11 plus type of programs and really focusing on that movement control. And so these programs were designed by physios who had seen these deficiencies when they're treating the athletes. And they basically target the primary movement patterns that have been identified as helping reduce the risk of injury. And it's basic movements when you look at these, it's can they run properly? Can they jump properly? Can they decelerate properly? Do we have some spine and torso stability? And then balance and proprioception. So that's probably the most commonly missed thing in some in the warm-ups that in neuromuscular training they really add in and covers the strength and proprioceptive or balance type training and asymmetry training that goes on in there. And just my experience of actually working through this winter on Zoom with lots mm-hmm. of these young athletes, because we didn't have access to the gym and we were in full lockdown. It was incredible how much they improved by doing this body weight movement training and they came back into the gym ready to go to the point some other strength coaches here I've talked to, we were all like, we're going to have a two week Zoom <laughs> thing before they come into gym next year, year. because it, it was, yeah, it was so surprising yeah. how much they had improved in just a short time with that. It's amazing. And I looked at, um, so I kind of cheated over the weekend. I got to look up Carl and see what she does, who she is. And so I jumped into, I think, on a link to a YouTube video that shows you doing a warm-up uh, with your athletes. When I looked at that, I, all I did was laugh. I was like, man, if you film my baseball pregame, it's exactly what it looks like, right? It's like, let's get some mobility. Let's get We start everybody with foam roll activities and uh, move on down to almost like myofascial sling uh, motion movement. And then proprioception, ensuring that force part of the equation is kind of the last thing we'll bring in, right, is, is, is some movement specificity. But, um, yeah, look, I think you're taking a scientific approach to injury reduction, and that is rare. So far in my experience for the last 20 years in the United States, that's rare. So, I mean, congratulations on that. And I, you've, seen some, you've seen some good injury reductions at youth at various levels because of this, correct? Yeah, it's incredible to see the numbers so with acute injuries depending on the sport and uh sex and age it'll be 35 up to 70 percent reduction in acute injuries especially for the lower limb injuries where you tend to have more catastrophic ones in the ankle and the knee that is a very very important number and i'm at the point where i'll take a 10 percent reduction in anything so when you see 30 35 up like then soccer um is where you see some of the higher higher numbers there and there's just a bit more research in that area with the fifa 11 plus uh being a bit more uh, established but our basketball studies we did for the nba and youth uh injuries and basketball similar things around that 30 percent zone for for acute injuries yeah so it's good it's very promising to have an evidence-based intervention that isn't relying only on an intuitive feeling that, yeah, I need to be working on movement. We can filter down to see what exercises we really can target uh, these problems with and create a better situation for the athletes, but also provide the performance enhancements. Because if you look at these movements and exercises, 
you will have a better jump. You mm. will be running yeah. with more efficiency. And so one thing they're starting to do now, because try and sell a kid who's never been injured on injury prevention. Um, <laughs> Eat your broccoli. Yeah, they're fine. They're never going to get hurt, yeah. right? So, and they're tough and they'll just be, they'll roll the ankle and then go back on the court two seconds later. Um, so one thing we've tried to, switch a bit in the branding is that performance enhancement mm. part of it mm. and focusing on the player availability and that sort of thing with uh how we teach that and really connecting those movements to that athlete's why yep. which is they're showing up there to get better at their sport and to have a good performance on the court and in games i continue to use the old car analogy you know it's always worked well for me especially in a sport like baseball where there was such gross asymmetry and there's, you, you've got an asymmetrical model, well, and especially when you're playing every day. So not only do you have asymmetry in, in technical aspects of the game, you've got chronic asymmetry. So immediately that renders the human musculoskeletal system into a short on one side, potentially long or weak on the other. And if we're starting at that point every day, I mean, it's just rapid degradation you know, daily for that athlete. So. One of the things we implemented with the Australian national baseball team was what we called a pre-flight checklist for our starting pitcher. They'd have an extra 15 minutes on the table. We would work up the kinematic chain to help maybe offset some of those initial musculoskeletal deficiencies before they went out to warm up and get that first pitch in. And that had quantifiably strong measurable effect to performance in the first inning. But look, I couldn't agree more, even in that scenario. With a 28 to 32-year-old athlete at the, at the world level, it's got to be a discussion of what's in it for me. How do you have that with a 10-year-old? Or do you even worry about that? Does a 10-year-old just say, Colin, I'll do whatever you tell me to do? Uh, it depends. <laughs> a lot of them want to um, play and throw exercise balls at each other yeah. instead of uh, training sometimes. So, all right. but, so at that point, are you yeah. assessing them or assessing their parents' Inability to provide the yeah. discipline. <laughs> Which one do you assess? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, that's a tough one. I'm not. I, I might get myself. Yeah, in you might get in trouble. That. We better not get And it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, but yeah, I think you know, with those, this has just always been in my style mm. how I've worked with clients and athletes. Yeah. But it is to find out what's important to them. What's the common language we can connect on. So with those younger athletes, I just am always relating what we're working on to how it will help create a foundation for a skill that they're working on in practice. So whether it's on court or on the field, we're always explaining the why. These newer uh, iGen kind of yeah. kids, they're always asking why, 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 why. And that's great because that's, that's actually how I was trained at the Canadian Sport Institute. I did my practicum there and every one of our programs they would write in red pen next to what you had done for your programming. Why? Why are you doing this? How does this fit in? Is this appropriate for that athlete, this context? And there's a lot of athletes that if they can understand the purpose behind doing something, that helps them stay accountable and motivated in, in moving forward uh, with what you're asking them to do in training. The other thing too is that with those young kids, I mean, you have to make it fun. Because uh, that's why they're showing up to sport. Mm. And one of the most important questions we can ask them is, hey, are you having fun? Yeah. I think there's a way looking at some of the the youth 
movement training programs. There's one in Canada, it's called Run, Jump, Throw. Mm. And they incorporate some of these uh, movements and skills into fun games for the kids as well. And it's also with those kids knowing that they're competitors and that's why they're in sport. So do we sometimes create a more competitive environment in in that training uh that point of okay you know who can do this one the best or yeah how many reps can we do of this today and and that sort of thing the other um part of the equation we would talk about the variability between kind of chronological age versus biological age right not all 14 year olds are the same not all 16 year olds are the same and there are gender differences right and there and it's always seems to be in that period of you know, body's changing, hormones are changing, motivation is changing, interests are changing. Um, have you have you had a, has that been a smooth journey through working with youth athletes or has that been something that you've got to consider it like every single day? Yeah, you have to look at it every single day. It's one of the most challenging parts about working with youth athletes is that on any given team, you're going to have 16 different growth curves you're looking at and there's and that's also the issue in research what age where are they in their peak height velocity curve or their peak weight velocity you know with that individual variation you know what's the best thing for that person at that time 10 to 15 year olds movement pattern symmetry what are the things you're looking at do you look at do you look at them statically do you look at them dynamically are you looking at them against growth curves to say, yeah, they're about their their expression, their force expression or their power expression is about where I would expect it? How do you baseline somebody? There's a few different ways which I've translated into my applied practice and the research setting we're looking at some of these things. So we do assessments that have a combination of the dynamic balance, which would be your Y balance yep. tests or those types of things. And then we do static balance, say a single leg balance on a foam pad and uh, with eyes closed, testing the proprioceptive system. We'll do the cardio testing and those aerobic capacity testing on them, check their strength. We, we also measure, you know, leg length mm. and, and all those, um, some different anthropometric ones as well. You know, I think you just have a, a comprehensive battery of, of testing, like I said, with the seated, standard height and mirror wall type equations, those different ones can help give us pieces to the puzzle for that individual athlete. Uh, With the patellar tendinopathy study I worked on, we were looking at uh, loaded ankle mobility. Mm. Um, So looking at their dorsiflexion scores, and that's something we test in most jumping athletes now. And that's pretty uh, standard to, to look at those and see if there's differences between left and right and it's very interesting and obviously the kids that have had ankle sprains how often you are going to see that mobility difference in the the dorsiflexion or that almost standing calf stretch type movement and it is really good uh to also have these tests as an opportunity to educate the athletes and get their buy-in to what you're actually doing in the programming so if you have a really good assessment that's tailored to their growth and development stage and you can explain that testing and, you know, monitor improvement in that. That helps that buy-in for that age of kid into your programming and what you're doing. If you can relate it back to a really good assessment. It's phenomenal. And I mean, one of the things I've looked at is we still have a big injury problem in sports. We have also a big data problem now, right? So one of the things I've been trying to unlock for many years is how do we 
get that data to be become currency that we can transact upon, that we can make better decisions for that athlete. So one of the um, people that I admire in our space that I've done a lot of work in and around and have been, we've been friends now for I think 14, 15 years is a guy, his name's Dr. Marcus Elliott out of P3 in Santa Barbara. And he has another facility down in Atlanta that he does work with the Atlanta Hawks uh, facility and does the NBA combine. And he's tested now over 600 NBA athletes. So of those 600 NBA athletes, he, in his assessment, he does force plate and motion capture assessments on them and in, a, in all these different battery of tests. And he finds, okay, first ordered metric now that aligns with knee injury is this. Second ordered is this. Third ordered is that. And it's creating such a beautiful pattern and profile that they can now, an NBA uh, rookie coming into the league can be assessed and projected on potentially what their risk of injury looks like versus what even the analysis of performance. Like Marcus said something to me the other week that was pretty interesting. He goes, yeah, he goes, I go to most NBA managers and coaches and owners and they want to see, first thing they want to see is how high does that kid jump? The second thing they want to see is how fast does he run down the floor? And he goes, well, he goes, I could take all those things, but if you take a guy like Harden and look at him, he goes, he's going to be in the lowest of the low across the board, but he's still an NBA all-star because his game is suited differently to different metrics. Is that something you like it with your participation at multiple levels in sports? Are you looking at different ordered metrics relative to how you design programs oh yeah without a doubt because what is going to make an athlete successful at the youth level versus the varsity versus professional i think that's an evolving story for them on that spectrum Mm. of what's important for that sport at that time and like you're talking about with that 10 to 15 year olds uh you're just trying to get them through the car crash of growth and development and it it if you can get them through that in reasonable form at this point we're saying that's successful and that we don't have a ton of re-injury and and that sort of thing what i've really learned a big mentor for me in calgary has been dr reed Ferber, and he uh, started the running injury clinic mm. and i very serendipitously uh, happened to share office space with him right when he was starting that and he was doing the things of the motion capture yeah. and biomechanical assessment and i got pulled in to be a subject in some of his studies and so I never really thought about movement in that that way, yeah. uh, just because the tools weren't available yeah. through their clinic. They actually also did the same thing with um, recreational and more competitive runners is developing risk profiles and their profile of what was important for that more recreational runner was definitely going to be composed of different things than for the more professional runner and that higher level athlete. And so I think what it, you know, you're talking about is you're trying to figure out what gives you the most bang for your buck, what tells us 80% of the story and okay, what, which factors can we narrow things down mm. to, to make it simple right. and efficient. And that comes back to that high performance definition, which is that we are being efficient because you don't want to overwhelm an athlete or a coach with a 20 point intervention strategy. Um, it's probably going to be, okay, let's prioritize the plan. What are three to four things we can really focus on right now 
And what's, how's that fit into our yearly plan? Mm -hmm. uh, at the varsity level, we would look at, I love university because I, I really get to work with those guys yeah. for five years and develop them. And we can make a really nice long-term plan for that athlete. And we've had some, you know, successful athletes uh, go through that program and you just see how each year as they develop, what is important might, might really change. So for example, most guys in the first couple of years of university may not be playing a whole uh, amount. So training load and workload may not be the biggest risk factor for them for injury at that point. Yet when they switch into playing more in their third to fifth year, now that match load, okay, we're looking at a competitive training load that that is way more important now. Right. And, and so even just within an individual, how risk factors can fluctuate on a daily basis, I think that's why we have a hard time projecting into the future about who might get hurt. Um, mm. We could probably guess that there are going to be injuries based on the sport and epidemiological research. We can know, hey, this might be the type, but can I say, oh yeah, these 10 totally? Not necessarily. Yeah, no, and I, I understand that entirely. The, the promise of machine learning and artificial intelligence has been around this metric people call injury prediction. Right? Or can we predict if someone's going to get hurt or not? And it's like, well, are you measuring the quality of the travel accommodation mattress that they're sleeping on? Are you measuring the quality of turbulence on an air flight which could brace somebody? There's so many factors that we don't measure that play into injury. That's why, you know, the smartest terminology is always, yeah, injury, it's a multifactorial process. There's a lot of things that lead into it. But to that end, I think. Anyone who says they can predict injury is that's the first red flag for me quite often because while you cannot predict injury, you can identify risk and load and load monitoring. I think in our very, as you mentioned earlier, at the very tip of the iceberg here, the very first thing that we were bringing into the United States from a sports science and North America in general, from a sports science perspective, was this ability to measure load and load patterns. And even to the point where some of the load application scores, like from Catapult and stuff, really don't apply to every sport. They apply to sports where you're running and moving uh, you know, a, a, a fair bit. If you've got a fair bit of linear translation, those scores will work out pretty well. But if you're an NFL lineman, that's yeah, a totally different bag of, bag of worms, so to speak. You know, We're opening up you know, so many different metrics. But... Let's talk a little bit about load monitoring because I know you've been using VERT and you've done a fair bit of work in and around this area. Do, have you found, Carlin, that there are hard and fast kind of algorithms around load that you're looking at and saying, okay, well, here's where I want a chronic load pattern and acute load pattern. Do you look at that by team position or by individual? How do you assess that? you know, exploratory analysis, we would look at both yeah, uh, and see what's happening to the teams. And I think it's important to look at that because each person contributes a certain percentage of training load to that mm. team. And so your training load, when you have 12 players at a practice versus 10, that distribution of load can sometimes change. Right. So there is some interactive effect in there, you know, of what's happening on the team level. And ultimately you are doing team training and you have a match schedule that you're trying to balance on. The, the best way to look at injury data, you know, for especially when, just as you mentioned, all the risk factors that can go into a person's 
chances of getting injured, you do have to look at that yeah. individually. Uh, so I think you have to pay attention to the situations where you have teams that have a lot of injuries and you need to look at, okay, what's going on there? What's the pattern or trail leading you to maybe a training mm. methodology, a mm. schedule, a certain type of training they might be doing, um, you know, whether it's as a team, are they all pretty fatigued? Uh, what are the types of injuries? And then, but on that individual level, one of the biggest or the biggest predictor of future injury is previous injury. Yep. And so, you know, knowing that individual's yeah. uh, own risk profile, I think is very important as you're trying to help them navigate either return to play or move through the different training loads. And so currently where we're at with the literature is looking at uh, the acute chronic mm -hmm. workload ratios and the relative training loads. So, okay, what did I do this week? How did I build up to that over the last maybe three to four weeks? And where we're moving on the analysis side of that is starting to get, starting to take advantage of that machine learning starting to take advantage of different analysis strategies, a higher level of stats that is way above me. I have a, I, I have a very lucky postdoc machine learning person that helps me with a lot of the data we look at. Yeah. Dr. Lauren Benson, she's out of the US OPC now, and she just does gymnastics with the data and can really um, you know, clarify which variables are probably the most important Excellent. and doing stepwise elimination to test out these different models of what what could help us um, with those individuals' risk profiles. Yeah, no, I hear, and and it's like it's a really interesting kind of conundrum. Do you take what you perceive to be an optimal genetic potential for a specific athlete and look at the demands that are potentially going to be placed upon them at a certain game tournament time structure and try to reverse engineer that based upon where they are now? Or do you take the data and just go, okay, here are the metrics. Here's the data in terms of this presentation and let's move forward day to day. I think there's a few different potential approaches to that. I've always been of the former. It's try to reverse engineer this and look at the demands on the athlete. When, and when you're in a, like a high skill sport like baseball, that's a, lot, that's a lot easier to do because the running loads don't matter as much as the throw loads and the static rotational nature of those athletes. I mean, there's a lot of different metrics I look at per se, other than say something like volleyball, basketball, where that rate of deceleration would be a key indicator, I would think, relative to you know, potential risk of injury. And again, it's, it's qualified by what data you have access to, right? So having said that, what do you think is the biggest gap you can't track what you're not measuring. And I think that's where that opportunity, again, when you come back to injury burden and showing the coaches those numbers of like, hey, this is how many weeks we're missing players, or this is how many athletes we're missing. And there's individual accountability also on the athletes with these numbers in the sense of using that technology to monitor their own jump loads, but their, their teams as well. So for example, when uh, in volleyball, if we're missing two middles, or uh, a setter, the load of practice doesn't necessarily change. Mm. Now those players are suddenly training way more. And that's actually where we've started to chase the trail in the data of some of these cycles of injuries and in teams mm. happening is did we have players experience a hot, like, you know, a 30% increase in load all of a sudden out of nowhere. And yeah. then 
then that person was out and then the person that stepped in for them that was another big increase and then that was out and so i think having that data to look at those numbers for external load and internal load and uh, looking at practice lengths and that sort of thing um, that's where i spend a lot of time in coaching development is getting them to look at those numbers assess objectively okay what actually happened what did i think was going to happen do I have numbers to um, support that? So one of the neat things we did with the Volleyball Alberta program one year is I did the coach RPE and then what they thought each position was. Because in, in volleyball, we have really different movement yeah. needs yep. for different positions. And so what do you think those positions RPE were? And then we compare it to the players. This is, again, anecdotal at this point. But in my experience, the higher level coaches have a much better awareness of what load they're imposing on their athletes and the effect on it and reading it and just seeing the intangibles like you're saying how did they move here how did they come out of that drill what's the expression on their face Mm. you know what's going on there um and then not only could they either adjust the session at that time in the context of their general training plan but could they make up for it or adjust the next day if something unplanned happened amazing Two things you bring up there that I think you've identified a big gap in our marketplace. One, coach education around physical systems metrics. Secondly, if we are back in a remote setting, the ability through data for the athlete to potentially coach themselves right along the framework of what the, the coach edict is, is manifesting. And it's, it's always interesting to me, but I'm catching up with him this week. Actually, two guys I really respect in North America are on this. Uh, Dr. Ben Peterson, who's uh, head of performance for the 49ers, we're both meeting at Austin FC with our buddy David Tenney, who uh, heads up, you know, the soccer, sits on a board for FIFA, um, uh, has just been a brilliant soccer high-performance director for a long time. And we talk about this stuff consistently and continuously and where are the gaps and, you know, what are the things we need? What are the missing elements? One of the reasons, you know, they kind of follow me because they know if I'm working on a technology project, it's got to be serious and it's got to have merit, you know, like Catapult did, Kinetics will also. And it's, you know, we're looking at these, this thing around, you know, human movement and creating these individual profiles that are all relative to, you know, the thing we should be looking at first. How do we create ground reaction force? What is that, you know, what are the factors that potentially limit that and limit your quality of movement and consistency and repeatability of activity these are all the metrics I think we've got to dive into and really understand so that we can project on an athlete, whether they're you know, a youth athlete or whether they're somebody who's performing at the top of their game. The human body, it's a cat and mouse game constantly, right? And I think looking at things dynamically, um, it's, it's great that you've got a resourceful team around you that can analyze data and give you that dynamic view as opposed to a static assessment view. The sports science side of it, we can't go in and I have to just observe. And that's a huge challenge of being in the research world is to just sit back and <laughs> let it go. Whereas in the applied setting, I do have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of good because I was doing my master's research at the same time I was implementing. I was like, hey, I learned this. Let's do this with the professional team or university team. Yeah. And so I did get a chance to like do my science on the athletes in live time. And it's that. a lot more flexible. Oh. So that parallel was was really great. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's it's a 
It's a continuum. It's changing. I think we have so much untapped data to look at still. And if you have, this is where now I come back to my love of biomechanics people. If you have those guys there helping you with the modeling to go through that data, you don't get overwhelmed. Like my background is in physiology and a, as a coach. Mm. And I was a coach, then I became a physiologist and went into all the training side of it. And from from that mindset, you're as a coach, I'm a great assistant coach. I never want to be a head coach. I love just hanging to the side. And but but that the head coach has a lot going on. So if you can um, have those people that can do the correct statistical analysis that can help deal with um, the data in that lifetime and make it easy for coaches to understand. I think that's a really effective way to address some of the gaps that we see. And then the other thing, just looking at the injury surveillance side, the, the biggest gap there is that we don't even do that. Mm. And it's not even happening in youth sports. Like it's not, it's not the norm to track even their workload. Right. It's not the norm to even track. They'll just, so they'll say, oh yeah, like 16 players were off the court by day three of provincial camp. And so I was like, okay, first thing we're going to do is actually measure, you know, what is going on here with the surveillance. And then we're actually using more updated methodologies for that as well, which I think as our injury methodology improves, we're going to be able to actually answer these questions better. But our injury definitions have changed over the last 10 years, not including the overuse injury continuum. We're missing about 10 times the underestimating injuries by about 10 times. Like to the point of in our NBA study, we found that the overuse injury burden was almost as bad as the acute yeah. injury burden. Right. And we don't, you know, and this is the thing, we don't understand that relationship very well yet of the overuse injury to the acute injury. I think we all assume there's something in there is an association, but the research, because we've lacked this even correct definition of what or more inclusive definition uh, versus yeah. just being time loss, but to starting to track um, some of these aches and pains and tendinopathies specifically early on. Uh, we need sensitive tools like the Oslo uh, Sports mm. Trauma Research Center questionnaires. We need validated ones. So we're not just asking whatever we think might yeah. work. Like there has been some work that's gone into, again, if we're going to take the time to ask these questions, you know, how, how are we going to do that? How are we going to phrase it? And then how many questions are, you know, are we getting as close to the right answer as possible? And I would just say, like, in, say, especially in sports, say, like basketball, you're having injuries very underreported. And we don't even know what the the burden really is as our methodology um, develops, but also the culture of those sports. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to get even, so say, the culture of basketball. They just like literally I saw kids sprain their ankle, hold an ice pack on it, and then five minutes later they're out like hobbling around, running around, and you know, normally I, I and again I'm the researcher sitting on the bench and I was like, I probably might have pulled that kid out, but like yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just I gotta watch. Like I can't I can't do anything here. Yeah, the so. consistency of data is really poor. Um generally it, yeah, when we're looking at the epidemiology across the board, I mean it's really it it is it's inconsistent uh, from the high levels on down, but to understand the individual mechanisms of injury and to, like we'd always say in our research that, you know, we're looking back from that date of injury when that happened, we're looking back that two weeks, there's something that happened in that two week window. It could be that far back that has 
been an indicator that there was we were on path to injury back then. What is it? How how could we have offset it? Could we have offset that? These are all questions that are still unknown because of the we don't even know the injury report. We don't even have a a differential other than a perceived scale of the difference between soreness and pain. Hey, some soreness is a good thing if we're in an adaptive period, right? And some soreness, um, if it's non-inflammatory related, needs to be, uh, it can be a good thing, right? If, if we're in tournament, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, yeah, it's creating that cons- the consistency language and getting the consistency of reports is, is going to be the first place that we can start to really spin data around and have a look at it and get closer to understanding where risk is. There's no question. Back to you know what you're saying about pain. Mm. I mean, pain is a whole other construct yeah. that is super interesting. And uh, my sister, she's a physiatrist, and so we'll we'll talk about pain and how yeah. people experience that differently, yeah. and that be, being a part of the injury definitions is a limitation. So our work we did with the teller tendinopathy research mm. for the basketball um, was looking at tendinopathy with ultrasound. Yeah. So you're going to have people who have no pain pathology, uh, have no pain, but they have a tendinopathy pathology. Yeah. And so you'll be like, why did that person get injured? They were never sore and their tendon ruptured or whatever. And it's that was a huge thing I learned. Uh, I had no idea you could have this tendon pathology with no pain yeah. symptoms. Um, and so I think that's where we get the radiologists in there looking at some of this stuff a bit more and understanding for these athletes, what's actually going on when, uh, yeah, they may not perceive that, or maybe again, that pain tolerance might really fluctuate between, uh, different people. It does. And, uh, yeah, it's, and I think we've seen it in different athletes. And so then you're like, okay, well, at what point are they, is that individual, now starting to report pain. Exactly. And maybe I see it in their movement before they're reporting pain. Yeah. And I think that's where the force, um, so like just things like, you know, uh, being able to have a uh, field technology where they're wearing it in the competition situations. Yeah. Um, that's like say with the vert has been really good because we'll measure their force on landing. We'll measure that jump yep. height. We can see lifetime, hey, why? Um, so I had an athlete who had had uh, it turned out to be a, a partially herniated disc, and he was jumping four inches lower than normal. And I could see it. Yeah. I could see like he does not look okay. And then I had the data to support that. Um, and he was just so ac- accustomed to the pain uh, that he didn't think enough to pull like to say yeah. hey i'm i'm not good um and that's the whole thing with pain it's like do you have someone that's sort of used to it exactly is this a catastrophic injury yep. did it just become catastrophic um is the nerve affected and that's why like you know we're getting these problems so i think there's a lot to dig into uh on those some of those subjective measures and understanding pain a bit better yeah if you can get a factual statement out of your athlete or something very truthful as to how they're feeling fantastic the subjectivity reports to me are are brilliant i mean they're a brilliant look at look through their lens at at how they're feeling around things and i i see a lot of value in there and looking at to your point and your studies in the rpe etc etc so yeah look i think they're they're highly valuable um combined with data and getting everybody speaking the same language around this will be a minor miracle. And that's when I think we'll begin the evolution of sports performance. 
is when we can start there and at least know what those rate limiting factors are for that next level of performance. You know, some sports are going backwards in terms of performance. Some are accelerating key performance markers at really high rates. And somewhere in between, there's a slew of injuries we've got to solve. We've got to solve for in the middle of that. Oh, exactly. And I think the whole other piece of it is um, because we have all this technology available, we have to figure out ways to implement it in you know, as a seamless, seamless way as possible. Mm. And I think that just because uh, this was a fatal assumption we actually made with our youth studies that we assumed they were just going to fill out the injury surveillance on the apps. They were just going to be, because they're so tech savvy, they would just like do what we wanted them to do on the technology. And actually one of our, our, our big study we did on 500 basketball players, we had to switch to paper and pen with a team designate to get their RPEs and their their attendance and their injury. We had to switch the whole, we had this really wow. fancy app that was like perfect. Uh, 20% of the kids used it. And um, if we had had it on Snapchat, I think it would have been more effective. Because <laughs> yeah. I learned very quickly, Snapchat is better than texting, which is better than email. Don't bother. Yep. Um, because we're like, oh, we'll email yeah. them. Okay, we'll text yeah. them. Uh, you know, and if I could have the ethics to go into Snapchat with research, I mean, yeah, I would do that. So, so hard. Um, so they just those kids, they just move so quickly. You just the next big thing. They've 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 already yeah. gone by the time we get there. And uh, so I think we we with the youth athletes on just collecting that data run into so many issues we didn't foresee because we assumed they would just like technology we assumed uh they would think oh yeah that's cool let's just do this and um you know out of that it pointed me towards some of our technology adoption models that are out there and uh, uh there's a nice developing body of research in that area. Um, but looking at, okay, how can we implement this, create the common language? How do we build uh, that that trust within the teams? And, you know, how uh, easy are these technologies to use? Can we adjust them on, you know, the engineering end? Or uh, so, for example, like, are these, how much do I have to charge this? So on and so forth. Like, there's a lot of barriers uh, to these. They're disruptive technologies. Yeah. So we're coming in. We're, we're changing the game. We're changing how these athletes think and work. And I think ultimately, like you're saying, that athlete-centered model, when I've been able to get the athletes to buy in and see how important that is, they're begging for a vert device. They're, yeah. they're, I literally had them uh, just being like, when do we get them? You know, are we uh, going to be able to use them this season? Oh, this is so cool. And they start to know their own bandwidth. And it's sort of like with people wearing a heart rate monitor, after a while, you kind of get an idea of where your heart rate is based on how you're feeling. Well, we can do that same thing in training yeah. them with their, um, you know, jump count, uh, jump height. And, and there's guys for sure within a few months, I could, they would probably guess within 10 jumps of where they were at wow. in a practice. And I think that's, that's a really neat way to build the autonomy of the athlete. And for me, the biggest effect I can make is to create an athlete that can monitor themselves, stand up for themselves, ask the questions, say how they're feeling, um, and that they can they can know, like get to the right person to access the help that they might need and know who that could be and understand the scope of practice of the different allied professionals that are available. 
and that if there is something going wrong, it's not a burden to be carried on their own, you know, shoulders till it's too late. Uh, so I would say with the youth athletes, if I, all of us youth trainers, if we can start to build these habits into them, they're going to show up to your college and pro levels of more uh, adaptable athlete that has a bit better awareness or has some tools in their toolbox that make it easier for you guys to work with them at that later stage. And I think ultimately that's, you know, something where we need to have that consistency in the athlete development uh, goals for how to, how to empower them to take care of their own health. Cause I can't, I can't make them sleep eight hours a night. I can't make them drink all the water they need to and eat healthy food. Right. It's, uh, it's just to help uh, guide them towards, you know, what are those things that are going to help them be successful? Carolyn, they're lucky to have you. That's all I'll say. Um, the, the fact that you use the word empower, I mean, is it, it's like, it, it's not, I've heard coaches say, well, I'm going to help him do this. I'm going to kind of, that's belittling, right? I mean, you want to empower them, get behind them, have them stand alone as you, as you indicated there. I thought that was wonderfully put, just absolutely beautiful. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time today. What's next for you? Um, how uh, are you saying I want to stay in my current role? This is going to be, you know, my life's work is going to be right here. Where do you go next? Well, I definitely have found a love for the sports science avenue of things and solving this problem of workload and looking at how we can better help our organizations, um, you know, support athletes. And so I think looking for uh, those different environments that, uh, you know, allow me to come in as that sports scientist um, and maybe not purely just as the strength coach, uh, that background definitely helps me. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in these different realms to, you know, step in. And so one thing I've started to do is more consulting for teams and just being able to help a head coach uh, of a, a coach I'm working with uh, that's out uh, a team in Europe that they're starting to work with and helping him start right off the bat with some good um, foundational things he should be tracking and and that sort of thing and then how uh, you know and then how to help inform the decision making a little bit better so I think that's a that's a big spot where we can help other organizations get set up on systems education and knowledge translation is a huge passion of mine uh, because it's something like at least seven to 10 years by the time something's on a paper, but before it gets out into uh, regular practice. And so, especially with the things we're doing in neuromuscular training, workload monitoring, uh, can we get that information out to the right people? Um, is there policy change that needs to be affected in certain places? You know, what are the different levels of that primary, secondary and tertiary um, intervention points, you know, where where we can fit in? So I could see my role really evolving depending on where I'm asked to enter at that point. Am I being asked to help, you know, more with the rehab side of things? Are we really focused on that, that prevention side? Are we trying to improve our practice? You know, um, and and I think that's where, uh, again, I, I'm never going to predict my own future because the like these devices weren't invented a few years ago and I literally you know sat in the the dean of kinesiology's office and said like I'm never doing a master's and I don't want to do that and I'm never going to go back to coaching like I just was I was actually working in clinical 
and uh, uh, rehab and yeah. joint and people with joint and hip issues. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I like this rehab side. And I never thought I was going to come back to sport. And that's like all I've done the last eight years. I never thought I was going to do research. So um, with caution, I say I will be in the kinesiology field and see where the innovation takes me. And uh and just I'm very open at this point and I stopped saying I'm not gonna do that. So and yeah, and I have to the people I told I was never doing grad school, I get to walk by them every day and they just throw I'm like carrying devices and they're just like, Yeah, I told you so. So <laughs> well, I love it, mate. Yeah. You're uh you'll be forever part of our community here at Kinetics because we're on that same journey. We don't know what we don't know and Coming into this, I remember saying to our CEO, President, I said, look, I'm not interested in answering questions. I'm interested in asking better questions. That's the key, right? Is, is, that's the only way this, this evolves is uh, for the individual athlete and uh, for teams and for sport in general is if we can really ask better questions. And it starts with how do we reduce injury? And a lot of it is going to start with where you're at right now at the coalface of youth sports. Yeah, I think it's... Um going to be very exciting to see where this field goes because I think you have a lot of practitioners who every person I've interacted with is very passionate about this yeah. these types of questions yeah. and and generating better ones and from the strength and conditioning role standpoint can we be doing our jobs better mm-hmm. and reverse engineer that performance and that's where wearable technology has changed my practice a yeah. lot in being able to have actually what that field measurement is. So we have high ecological validity of what's going on out there. And can I now work back and now prep this athlete for what I know they're going to be seeing in a game and a tournament and a, and a match. And, you know, do we, um, and then how, who are those other people I need to engage and what collaborative partnerships to help evolve and support that, that system a little bit more. And so I think that's where, as the technology continues to uh, be developed, we're, I mean, like I said, you're, you don't know where that question mm. might take you, but I think as strength coaches, we can get way better uh, information thanks to this uh, versus, oh, I just did a vertical jump test at the start and the end of the season. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so now I'm like, oh, I get data. I, yeah, those data points all the time. And I can, um, you know, really go back and evaluate things with a lot more information yeah. and, and and a bit more objectivity than I used to. So I think I think that's where it's it's taking that uh, objective standpoint to challenge our own biases. Uh, and one thing I always like in like uh, qualitative research is they at the start of their articles say what their biases are, and uh, and they say I am this person this this this. And I think that's something we in quantitative research need to really do more of oh, and I, it would be great if we added that in hey these are my biases like well, exactly that i'm walking this and not that it's bad but just be aware of them well yeah know? and that's so. like oh, that's one of the beauties of going to the strength and conditioning conferences everyone's got their their certification letters behind their name i know usa weightlifting bias i know the cscs bias i know the nasm bias it's almost like you know uh it's different churches of religion Right is, is is what this becomes, and I think to that point, um, and in closing, um, yeah, it'd be hard to work with you because I think we think exactly the same way. We're going to learn nothing. <laughs> we would learn nothing working together. We think the same way. But um, 
Mine account, thank you. Well, so, sometimes you need someone to encourage you. So you're like, hey, I'm not totally in outer space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Space. Sometimes I wonder. Yeah, I, I'm I, like, where am I? Yeah, really? Am I, am I yeah. just an idiot? Am I, on the right path? am I an idiot for thinking yeah. this way? Or does somebody else think this way too, right? We're the island of misfit toys when it comes to, you know, trying to solve these problems. So anyone who wants to jump on that island, that's what this podcast is for. Is we want to find them. Yeah, let's 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 yeah, find that it. next level. So, mate, we will uh, keep in touch. I can't thank you enough for today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Human Kinosome Project. Our music is provided by the incredibly talented Joanna Magic. I hope you'll join our community at discord.gg/kinetics. Team, the game is just beginning.